So throughout these uh, first seven chapters, Paul has been defending himself and his ministry against false accusations and mistreatment by the Corinthians. So far throughout the process, we've seen a number of things. Paul started off by talking about the role that suffering and comfort play in our lives. When he defended his change in plans, we learned the value of maintaining a clear conscience before God and men and the importance of being trustworthy in what we say and what we do. When Paul encouraged the Corinthians to forgive a repentant brother, we learned how one person's sins can affect the entire church body. We've learned about the value and purpose of church discipline, but then also how love and forgiveness should be expressed when repentance is demonstrated, and that was important as well. And then the last four weeks, Dustin has walked us through a section where Paul talks about not just his adequacy, but also our adequacy as a servant of God, and that was in direct contrast to the false teachers. In our passage today, Paul is still defending himself, but now we are actually going to get into his motivations and the influences that drove his behavior and his actions. Um, each of these sets Paul apart from the false teachers who brought these charges against him. And so this is still part of his uh, attempt to defend himself, but he's going to reveal to us what actually was behind the man, what drove him to behave and do, to behave in a certain way and do the things that he did. And ultimately, he's hoping that this will then become his defense for the Corinthians, that they will use it to defend him against the false teachers. And we'll see that in this passage today. So we're going to be in chapter 5 today, just looking at verses 11 through 17. Let's look at just the first two verses that, uh, of our passage this morning, verse 11 and 12. Chapter 5, he says this in verses 11 through 12. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we per, uh, persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer to those who take pride in appearance, not in heart. A hallmark of Paul's ministry, and we see this throughout the scriptures, was his passion for persuading men and women of the people or of the uh, truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and their need for him. That was a passion of Paul's, and that's pretty clear. Acts chapter 18, verse 4, Paul, or we, we read this about Paul. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. In Acts chapter 19, verse 8, we read this about him. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Again, a little bit later in Acts chapter 19, it says, You see and hear... That not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. That was an accusation against Paul, that he had turned people away from Judaism and the law to a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul had a reputation of having this passion for persuading people, which is basically argument and debate, trying to win them over. Um, that was his passion. That's what drove him. Look at uh, our first verse today. We sort of see what's behind that because Paul says, for we must, or I'm sorry, um, verse 11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, 
we persuade men. So what is it that drove Paul to make his life ambition persuading men and women of the truth of the gospel? Well, he tells us right here, it was a fear of the Lord. Now, right before that, in verse 10, he says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds, or rewarded, if you will, or paid back for his deeds. And I hope that we are made, or I'm sorry, um, back up in verse 10, according to what he has done, whether good or bad, he'll be recompensed. Paul says we're all going to have to ultimately stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. And then uh, how we do at that moment ultimately then um, indicates or determines what our lives were like before Christ. So we're going to have to give an account of what we've done, good or bad, it says. And that's for believers and unbelievers. Now, that doesn't mean we earn our salvation. For believers, it's the option for rewards, if you will. In fact, elsewhere, we're told that if we remain faithful, we get to reign with Christ. That's our reward. But we will have to stand before him. And so Paul says that that understanding, recognizing that we'll all have to stand before Jesus Christ someday, represented fear. Now, in this particular instance, we could argue, well, it's more respect. But I think Paul has in mind here fear. Not dread, but rather recognizing, at some point, I'm going to have to stand before Christ. And that's not a comfortable thing. Now, Paul doesn't have to worry about his salvation. None of us do. But... Much like a father, your father's going to love you one way or the other. I have two daughters, and I love my daughters, and sometimes they disobey, and I'm not happy with them. And I'm sure there's a little bit of fear and trepidation there as they have to you know, deal with me. But they don't have to worry about not becoming my children anymore. I still love them one way or the other. But there's a time for healthy fear, and this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. So knowing that he would ultimately have to face Christ and give account for his actions, he made it his ambition, he says, to please the Lord. Jump up to verse 9. He says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So Paul's fear of standing before Christ, his fear of this, I'll call it, future judgment. Again, it's not a judgment regarding salvation as much as it is rewards and and giving an account of your life. Paul says, because of that, we made it our ambition to please the Lord. And as Paul looked at that, he saw that that meant that he had to be out there persuading men of the truth of the gospel. And part of that is because he knew that all men would have to face Christ. You notice that's what it says. All of us have to stand before Christ. So Paul is sort of using what I'm going to call like a, a, a... double nuanced statement here. He knew that he himself would have to stand before the Lord, so that was enough to motivate him to persuade men, but he also knew that you and you and you and you, well, not Dustin, he doesn't have to worry about it, but he knew that other men and women would have to stand before Christ, and because of that, knowing the fear of the Lord, he persuaded them, knowing that they would have to stand before the Lord. Now think about that for a moment, because in that instance, he's probably thinking judgment regarding sin and death. In other words, for Paul, it was more about, how did I live my life as a Christian? Did I please Christ or not? It wasn't about salvation, but for other men and women who didn't know Christ yet, the people that Paul was evangelizing, for them that judgment was the sheeps and the goats. They faced a much greater consequence and so this fear of the Lord was twofold, two, uh, was twofold for Paul. The fear he himself 
had, which was a more of a reverence and an understanding of standing before his, his Savior. But for them, it was standing before their judge. And so that drove Paul to do what he did. He would look out and he would see the people, the Jews in the synagogue that he would go to first, knowing you will have to face the Lord and there should be a certain amount of fear for that. And so he, would go, he was moved to persuade them because he understood proper fear of the Lord. If you look at verse B, it says, but we are made manifest or known to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consequence or in your consciences. What he says there is that he had hoped that this motivation, the fear of the Lord, would be evident to the Corinthians. He wanted them to see, this is what drives me. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because that's not what drove the false teachers. In fact, if anything, the false teachers lacked a proper fear of the Lord. In fact, elsewhere, we'll, I think we'll, we'll get to the passage, I think I'll read it a little bit later, where Peter sort of lays out what the real motivation is behind false teaching. It's often greed, it's often self-centered, it's often about me. And so Paul was basically saying he wanted the Corinthians to understand and see this fear of the Lord that he had that drove him. And he wanted them to be able to become proud of him for that. Look at verse 12. It says, We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. I think that's probably because at this point, maybe there was some concern that the Corinthians were ashamed of being associated with Paul. And Paul knew it. Think about that for a moment. These false teachers, these hyper-apostles, these puffed-up men with pride come in. You know, we're the true apostles, not this person, Paul. Look at him. The guy dresses kind of funky. He's poor. He's a tent maker. He doesn't, doesn't get paid for what he does. How much value can you place in what Paul teaches and says when he can't even make a living doing it like us? Oh, look, we have these great letters of recommendation. Look where we've been, you know? We regularly preach before a thousand people. Paul, pfft, he goes to the synagogue. He doesn't have a following. Look at him. And oh, by the way, that collection that he's trying to get, that's not for the Jews in Jerusalem. That's for himself. He does it behind the scenes. He's not even honest anymore. How could you be associated with that man? So Paul's response to that is, hmm, look at what drives them and then look at what drives me. I'm driven because of the fear of the Lord. Not just in my own life, recognizing that I have to stand and give account before Jesus, but I am driven because all of those people out there, all those Gentiles, all those Jews, have to stand before Christ. And because of the fear that they should have, I am motivated to preach the gospel to them. That is what drives me. And so his hope was that they would be able to see that in him and be proud of him for that and not ashamed. He says in verse, the second half of verse 12, so that you will have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. That's again a stab at those false teachers that put much more um, emphasis on how a person looked rather than what was in the heart. And again, I think it's a stab where they were probably mocking Paul because of the way he physically looked, the way he behaved, um, the fact that he was a lowly character. In fact, think of the fall from grace. They may even use that for, against Paul. Paul was a prominent, prominent Pharisee, extremely educated, probably wealthy because most Pharisees were wealthy. And here the guy is making tents 
sometimes not having enough to survive, traveling from city to city, probably without the caravan, but with a bunch of ragtag other guys. So they would look at Paul and have a certain amount of derision towards him. They placed more appearance in, or more pride in their appearance rather than looking at the heart. And so what Paul was saying is, I want you to be able to have an answer to defend me against these false teachers. And the way that you can do that is be proud of the fact that I am driven by a fear of the Lord, not other things. And that was his hope. So what's the practical application in this for us? Paul wanted his fear of the Lord to be evident to his readers, so that would serve as both a defense um, against his accusers, but also... um, stir up a certain amount of pride in them towards him. My question to us is whether or not others see the same fear of the Lord in us. Think about your own life for a second. Um, Would people consider you to be a God-fearer? Somebody who has a proper respect and healthy fear of the God that you serve. Would they say that regulates your behavior? Or are you driven by other things? I think, unfortunately, many Christians, and I'll be real frank, including me at times, lose sight of the fact that someday we have to stand before Christ. I think it gets really easy for us sometimes because, you know, we, um, we get saved and hopefully our lives change. Maybe some of those things we used to do, we don't do anymore. I had a discussion with Kimberly not too long ago. I didn't get saved until I was 19. I remember what I used to be like. Thank God I am not like what I used to be like. Now, does that mean I've overcome every area I've ever... No. But the reality of it is, I am a different person today, and thank God for that, because I do not like the person I used to be. Okay, I can, I don't, I'm not going to, but I can name the things that I did and the ways that I thought and some of the things that I'm ashamed of today. Now, with that in mind, because of that, as I grow and as I mature, I would say, I think I can say this fairly comfortably, I don't actively engage in gross sin that's just sort of glaring out there that everybody sees it, right? And because of that, we become somewhat desensitized. We think we're okay, you know? We don't often think to ourselves, wait a minute, I should be living my life in a way where I still continually evaluate what I do and how I behave. Because we just don't think we're very sinful anymore. Because we're saved, right? Am I the only one that sometimes thinks that? I mean, I don't always evaluate myself, you know? Um, And yet, we are told in the scriptures to continue to evaluate ourselves to make sure we stay in the faith. You know, we're warned about walking in a way. I I started um, uh, a couple of months ago actively praying in the mornings a specific thing. And that's when Paul tells the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so now, almost on a morning basis... One of my prayers to the Lord is, just help me to walk in a way that's worthy. And I, and I do that because I forget sometimes. I just behave the way my flesh... Sometimes I go back and I had a situation... I won't tell what the details are, but the other morning I had an issue where I was upset and Kimberly saw me behaving in a way that wasn't very Christ-honoring. Okay, And, I, and she said, you kind of feel bad about that sometimes, don't you? I'm like, yeah, I do. And I should. There should be a certain amount of remorse. You know? We sometimes, I think, forget as Christians that we have to stand before Jesus at some point. It isn't just we get saved and, hey, we got our salvation, woohoo, it's all good to go and we're guaranteed rewards, you know? That's all we've got to... No. The next thing that happens when we die is we stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. And I think we forget that sometimes. And so the practical 
application for us, I think, is to be like Paul and make sure that we maintain a healthy understanding of the fear of the Lord and recognize that um, we will stand before him and give an account. And it may not just be for glaring sins. It may be for where your heart was at, how you invested your time and your energy. Um, Did you turn your back when you saw others in need when you could have helped out? You know, there are what we refer to as sins of commission, sins you just do, and then there's sins of omission, not doing things you should do. We'll have to give an account of both of those. And so I think the practical application for us, again, is to remain keenly aware that while we don't have to have dread as we face Christ, we should recognize that, you know what, someday I'll stand before him, and a healthy fear would indicate that I'll want to live my life today so that when I get to talk to him, there's not going to be as much dirty laundry as there is clean stuff. (laughs) You know, that I'll be able to talk to him and say, you know what, no, I live my life in a way I desperately wanted to please you, just like Paul did. And yeah, there'll be those things we'll still probably hold our head down in shame and say, yeah, I blew it here, I blew it there. But we'll be able to stand before him with a certain amount of confidence. And again, it's not about our salvation. In fact, I think the Corinthians were told that some of them got saved through the flames. That's not the way I want to be saved. I don't want to get there and Jesus go, you barely made it. Whew, boy. All you got is your salvation, buddy. No, I'd like to receive that well done, good and faithful servant. I'd like to receive what Paul told Timothy. Those that, that suffer with him and continue with him get the right to reign with him. So, I think that's a a good talking point for us to have that healthy fear that Paul did. Let's move on. The other thing we learn about Paul is not only was he uh, motivated by a proper fear of the Lord, but he was controlled by the love of Christ. Look at verses 13 through 15 in chapter 5. I'll read those. He says, For if we are beside ourselves, in other words, if we're crazy, it's for um, God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he, di- or, and he died for all, so that they who might, or those who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What's this section about? Regardless of what the false teachers may have claimed regarding Paul, Paul did what he did for God and for others. Plain and simple. Notice he starts off with this statement, for if we are beside ourselves, there's two instances in the New Testament where that, um, I'm sorry, in in all the instances where this word that he uses here, this um, Greek word, it generally means to be um, like amazed at something. And so you might translate this, for if we're amazed, but there's a couple of instances where the same word is used to refer to somebody losing their senses. And that's the way Paul uses it here. So if you were just to do like a word search on this, uh, on the word he uses here for um, out of their minds, you're going to find that amazed. And you might get caught up in that, but you have to look at how it's used. And again, two instances it's used to refer to somebody almost being crazy or out of their mind. Um, one of them is in Mark chapter three twenty-one, where it's translated about Jesus that he lost his senses. So, in other words, what Paul is saying here: if we're crazy, I think it's a what the um, false teachers are saying. Paul's crazy. You can't trust him. Paul's saying, if we're crazy, it's for God. I don't mind being crazy for God. I don't care if if my thoughts and my actions, as long as they line up with Him. If the only one who thinks I'm not crazy is God, I'm cool with that. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. 
he may have been responding again to an accusation by by his accusers. He's basically saying, look, we're, we're not crazy in what we teach. We're not out of our minds. If anything, we're of sound mind and, and it's all because of you. He goes on to say that unlike the false teachers who prided themselves on external things, Paul was motivated by Christ's love. And that's where we really get into the meat of this. It says in verses 14 through 15, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he who died for all, or he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The word for control here um, has many different meanings, including control, constraint, guard, um, to um, crowd around somebody, to press upon somebody. It's kind of an interesting word, but the general idea is that the love of Christ so gripped Paul that it controlled or compelled his behavior. It dictated what he did. Now, there's two ways to understand the love of Christ here. I'm going to get a little technical here, but I think this is important for us. When Paul refers to the love of Christ compelling him, there's two ways to understand that. One is what's referred to as the objective way. And it's this. It's to understand Paul's love, or it's to understand that Paul's talking about his love for Christ. Okay? In other words, Paul's love for Christ is what motivated him. That'd be one way to interpret this, and it's referred to as um, the objective view. And it all has to do with how we translate um, the Greek words that are here. Okay? You have to classify usage, almost like, you know, in, in English we have certain like adjectives, they do a certain thing, right? And adverbs do a certain thing, and you have rules. Well, same thing with Greek. And so um, one of the ways to look at this is you have to, def- to determine that Um, love of Christ, that phrase. Is it an objective phrase or a subjective phrase? And if it's an objective phrase here, it means that it's talking about Paul's love for Jesus that gripped him or controlled him. The other way to translate this is what's called the subjective. And that basically means that the love of Christ refers to Christ's love of Paul and others. So does that make sense? You've got one which is my love for Christ versus Christ's love for me. Either one can be called the love of Christ. My love of Christ or the love of Christ for us. The question is, which one of these is Paul referring to? It'd be easiest for us, probably, and to be real frank, um, I think most people probably would treat it the first way. But I think Paul's talking about the second. That it was Christ's love of Paul and Christ's love of us, mankind, that actually compelled Paul to do what he did. Now, was Paul motivated because of his love for Jesus? Probably. Is that what he's saying here, though? Probably not. While other, while the um, either opinion is both considered a valid opinion a valid interpretation. The second option, I think, is the one Paul is referring to because he actually goes on in the context and tells us how Christ loved us. The context is king. It determines how to interpret that. Look at verse 14. He said, one died for all. That's how Christ loved us. That one died for all. He says then that those who accept that grift, that gift, they all die. He says, therefore, all died. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me real briefly here. What does that mean, that all die? Paul has in mind here himself and other believers. One died for all. The all there means all of mankind. 
Therefore, all died. The all there means believers. Okay? But Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, tells us what that means. Colossians 3, 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When the believer dies in Christ, he's now hidden in Christ, covered by Christ. He is as much in Christ as anything else. Go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. What is that? I've died. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says that when we die, when we were crucified in Christ, we no longer live in ourselves, we live in Christ. And so Paul here, when we go back to our 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 15, he says, And he died for all, so that they who might live, no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So what Paul basically does here is he tells us, what did Christ do to love us? He died for all. And those of us that accept that have been grafted into him, and we now live through and in him. Not for ourselves, but for him. And so Paul says that because of that understanding, because he recognizes and understands that those that are in Christ now must live for Christ, that compelled Paul to preach the gospel and to do what he did. That's why he did what he did with the Corinthians. That's why he suffered their suffering. That's why he put up with what he had to put up with with the Corinthians. Because the Corinthians were not living in Christ. They were not living for Christ. They were living for themselves. And Paul says, no, you don't understand. Now that you're in Christ, you must live for him. And so it compelled Paul to do what he did. It was the love of Christ toward men and towards Paul that motivated him to do what he did. He not only chose to live for Christ himself, but he made it his life mission to persuade others to do the same. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures is from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. It says this, that, God, that Paul worked to present every man complete, the word there is mature, in Christ. That was Paul's goal in life. He wanted, as he looked out, he wanted to present every individual as a mature believer in Christ. Paul was not simply interested in getting people saved. What he wanted was maturity. Life in Christ. People that understood that they were to live for Christ, not for themselves anymore. Every single one of his epistles has that in mind, does it not? Paul wasn't simply satisfied with winning a Jew to Christ and moving on to the next town. He wasn't just an evangelist. He was a disciple maker. And because he understood that that was the goal for every Christian, that's what drove him. He says that's what compelled his behavior. That was totally the opposite of the false teachers. I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2.
there are many places we can turn that tell us about false teachers and their motivations, but Peter's got one. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to just, I'm going to read it and highlight a couple of things here. I think it's 2 Peter chapter 2, is that right? Yeah, 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets, those are false teachers, also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. That's what drove them. Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, that's what drove them. They will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness preserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought up a flood upon the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, then we'll jump down to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly men from temptation and to keep the unrighteous, that's a specific reference to the, un- the teachers here, I believe, under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh, That's the false teachers. They indulge their flesh. They do what their flesh wants. They indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. They're daring. They're self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, they're driven by their instincts. To be captured and killed, reviling, when they have no knowledge, will in destruction of those creatures also. I can go on and on in this passage. You see the picture that Peter paints of false teachers and what drives them. And Paul says, but that's not me. Those are the hyper-apostles that are abusing you right now, that are teaching you false things, that are telling you not to trust me. But Paul says, I'm driven and compelled by Christ's love. For you, Corinthians... And for all men. Randy, I'm going to have you do a video here in a second, but what controls you? What's the driving force behind what you do, how you live your life, the decisions you make, how you spend your time or your money, the things you value, what's important to you? What is it that drives you? The driving force in Paul's life was what Christ did for us. And I think, again, that's a distinction that has to be made. It's one thing to be driven for our love for Christ, but that can wane, folks. But Christ's love for us never wanes. If that's your motivation, that's a little more consistent than just your love for Christ. You know, I, I tease all the time when, you know, Amy used to ask me all the time, do you love me? And I say, yes, because I have to. <laughs> and I used to tell her, well, you should feel more secure in that because if it were simply because I wanted to, it would wane. But the fact that I have to love you, the fact that God commands me to love you, i got to love you, honey. It'll never change. I know that doesn't make her feel good. But when it's the love of Christ for us and for mankind that drives us to do what we do, that's much more consistent than how I feel towards him. I'm going to make a statement here, and I'm going to play a video. I think Christianity here in the United States has become a bit narcissistic. What I mean by that is that the focus has become on self, on me. You know, it's what God can do for me what God wants for me. You know, it's in some you know circles, it's the whole 
prosperity gospel thing, you know, that God wants me healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, you know, I get whatever I pray for, and you should just name it and claim it and demand it. But even in our circles, sometimes it's about us. You know, it's what God can do for me. And I'm going to play a video here. This is, um, some of you may have seen this before. Um, it kind of drives this home a little bit. It's uh, done by John Christ, who's a Christian comedian. Um, there's two of them. I'm just going to have Randy play the first one here, but it's, uh, you'll, you'll get it, and I'm going to make a comment afterwards. Go ahead and play it. It's the Church Hunters one. Nick and Molly just moved to the city and can't agree on what they want. They are young and energetic and looking for a new church home. We'll take some personality tests, tour the sites, ask some questions, and based on taste, experience, and location, we'll find them the perfect congregation. I'm Corey Clark, and welcome to Church Hunters. We're so excited to find a church. We just started dating. Um, with the churches we go to now, just not, like for us, just not really doing it for us, you know? Right. I, I go to a satellite campus. I just find it hard to connect emotionally with a video screen. It's just... Okay, you cried during Cake Boss. So, like, we've been doing a lot of services online, a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of preachers we do like. Really good, but we want we want serious yet funny. Yeah, like commanding of the stage yet relatable, you know? Mm -hmm. We're more looking for uh, the humor of Andy Stanley with the body of Stephen Furtick. Hey guys, what's happening? I'm Corey. Good to see you. My name's Nick. This hey, is Molly. Hey guys, welcome to Church Hunters. This is your first church. This is Creekside First Baptist. So while it is traditional, it's still pretty current. Just yeah. this year, the pastor started untucking his shirts. Oh, wow. that's good. Big deal. He does dress his age though, so don't worry. He's past the Osteen suit phase, but he hasn't gone full Giglio yet. Okay, oh. so there's holes in the knees or no? Well, it's frayed, but no holes. Frayed? Oh. No, okay, got it. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So hey, let me show you around. Okay, right, come let's on. Do it. I do love this lobby. It's a great lobby. You know, yeah. it's not too big, not too small. Yeah. It should be enough room to catch up, chat with your friends. So you need. But here's a great thing. There's a bunch of side exits, so if you need to leave early and catch the game, you can do that. Got it. Yes. Oh. Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. No. I, First Baptist? Who names a church that anymore? I just... Not these days. We're looking no. for like a Thrive Church, maybe Relevant Church, I don't know, Radiant Church, something. This is the soundboard they use here. Okay. Now remember, it's pretty traditional here, so when Sunday comes around, they turn it way down low. Got it. <laughs> yeah. But the one knock on this church, they still use the child care numbering system on the screens. Ooh, oh. for the yeah. Or as the moms like to call it, the sanctuary walk of shame. Yeah. <laughs> the Sunday morning experience was just a little too traditional for, for us. us. I mean, the pastor's main point, 157 characters. I can't tweet that. I really think you guys are going to love this place. I like we it. We do. We like Feels it. Yeah. You know, it's diverse, but it's not like too diverse, you know? Um, scripture heavy sermons? Oh, yeah. Yeah? yeah. What about, uh, is it community oriented? Absolutely. Great. Oh, women in ministry? The parking situation, you guys got to see it. Super rare nowadays. Come with me. There's like a, a maybe for when my parents we'll come into to town. Yeah. For a church, for Christmas, Easter type of church. Like a holiday Holidays. type church. One of the main reasons that I love this church for you guys is that on your personality test, Molly, you scored high in service and hospitality. Oh, babe. And there's wow. a great welcome team you could join. Perfect. Okay. And then Nick, you scored really high in need for accountability. Wow. And the men's groups here are amazing. You're just, you're just going to put that out there? Hey, God like knows that? your heart, okay? 
on the next episode of Church Hunters. I think you're really going to love this place. They take relevance to a whole new level. This church identifies as interdenominational. This pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. There's actually a second one. I've got it on there. We can show it afterwards if we want to. But um, obviously, all, you know, all laughing aside, I mean, the comment that I think in the church, in some respects, um, it's become a little bit narcissistic, meaning that what drives us and what controls us are our own desires, our own needs, our own wants. And that's not what drove Paul. He put all that aside. And instead, what compelled him, what, what, what dictated how he behaved and what he did was he would look at Christ and realize what Christ had done. And so Paul, the reason he invested the, his life the way he did and the reason he suffered the way he did, the reason he gave up so many of his rights and privileges, the, the reason why he gave up the, the fancy life of the Pharisee and instead became a traveler building tents was because he was compelled to control by what Christ had done for us. And it can make a difference. And I, you know, I think, unfortunately, in so many churches today have started catering to our felt needs. Even our preaching and our teaching caters to our felt needs. You walk into the average Christian bookstore and the largest sections are the self-help sections. Um, it's become, in many respects, all about us, and that was totally opposite. And the church reflects that, oftentimes. And so the question for us is, what controls us? Is it just my own desires and things that I want and feel and, and whatnot, or is it, man, what Christ did, what Christ did for us? How might that change the, the way we live our lives, the decisions we make, how we use our money and our time and our talents and other things. Let's move on to the very last piece here. Paul was influenced by a new and different perspective, and so he was motivated by a fear of the Lord. He was controlled by the love of Christ. Here he's influenced by a new and different perspective. And this is kind of an interesting one. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 5. He says, Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. That's a hit right against the... False teachers. We recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. It's a little bit challenging to to interpret this, but we're going to kind of walk our way through it. Paul has already described the false teachers as taking pride in appearance and not in heart, if you remember in verse 12. To the contrary, Paul states that he wasn't that way. He didn't pay attention to appearance. He was rather more interested in the heart. But he says, very specifically in verse 16, that from now on we don't recognize anybody according to the flesh. So what exactly does he mean by that? I think what he's referring to there is looking at people through the perspective of the flesh, meaning evaluating them simply based on what he can see and recognize through his own flesh. But in addition, just recognizing what he sees in their own flesh, meaning he sees their behavior or who they are based on what they behave like and how they act. And so he says, that's what the false teachers do. Okay? They see everything through the flesh, everything through their own mind, will, and emotions. And we see that throughout the scriptures with false teachers. That's the way they operate. In fact, that's the way they teach. They teach about the flesh. In fact, the whole book of Colossians are about these false teachers that had come in and told them that the way, the way to know God more fully is by abusing their bodies. It's all about the flesh. And Paul says, the false teachers may do that, but that's not the way that we operate. We don't view others in the flesh, but we also don't view them through a fleshly perspective. Instead, he says, um, 
they view them differently or through a new perspective. Notice here he says something interesting. He says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. What does he mean by that? How did Paul know Christ according to the flesh? Well, he's talking about his pre-saved days there. When he was a Pharisee, the way that he viewed Christ was through the flesh. All he saw was this guy that claimed to be a spiritual leader with a bunch of followers who were a bunch of criminals and misfits. Paul says, that's the way that I saw Christ. And so what did Paul do? Persecuted his followers. That's the best Paul could do, was to view Christ according to his flesh. But then something happened to Paul, didn't it? Got knocked off his horse, got blind for a little bit, the Lord saved him. How did Paul view Christ then? Very differently. Paul had a new perspective, a new way of looking at Christ. So while he knew him at one point only according to his flesh, he now knew him differently. Doesn't know Christ according to the flesh. How about you and I? When I was growing up, went to church every Sunday morning, I mean, I might have known who Christ was in the sense that of, of him being called the Son of God and all that, but it wasn't until I was saved that my whole entire perspective on who Christ was and my need for him changed. And that's where this next phrase, this next um, verse actually comes into play. It's often, I believe, a verse that's misunderstood. Notice Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, how many of you have heard that verse used to say that you are a new creation in Christ? Now, that's true. We are new in Christ. We become partakers of the divine nature. But I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here because it doesn't fit the context very well. In fact, most English translations translate it in a way that I just mentioned here, that you are a new creation in Christ. There's one translation, however, that translates it a little more generically, and that happens to be the NIV. The NIV actually says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, old things have passed, behold, things... Or, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It doesn't say he is a new creation, but rather the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. A more literal rendering of the Greek text here is this. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Not he is a new creation, just new creation. The old creation is gone, the new creation has come. What's the point? I believe that this passage is more appropriately understood as this. When an individual comes to Christ, everything changes. Perspective changes. What he sees is God's creation all through a completely new perspective, through the lens of the gospel and through Christ. And that is absolutely true. When we get saved, our perspective changes. We now see things for what they really are. We see the truth. That matches what Paul just said. When Paul says, we used to see Christ in a certain way, but when I came to Christ, I saw him in a new way now. In the same way, that happens to every believer. Now, it is true that we are new creations in Christ. Because Paul talks about the old man being put aside, the new man being put on. But what Paul has in mind here, I believe, is much different. That we see things differently. We see new creation. Our perspective changes. 
And again, it's a knock against the false teachers who had a fleshly perspective because they only saw according to the flesh. Paul says, (laughs) that was me. But now, I don't see people that way. I see people with a new perspective. And why is that important for Paul? Because it had everything to do with how Paul would treat people, how he would behave. So I hold kind of the second opinion, if you will, that this isn't about us becoming new creations in Christ, but rather, when you get saved, everything's new. You see it all with new eyes. You have a new motivation in life, a new goal in life, a new way of seeing things, the ability to evaluate things properly, because now we can understand the Word of God and we can apply that and see things properly. Isn't it kind of... I've been watching the politics here, and it's amazing to see how unsaved people don't just twist the truth when it comes to spiritual things. They twist the truth everywhere. I saw an article the other day where President Trump was asked the other day by a news reporter if if he would consider calling President Obama and um, who was the other ex-president that got the bomb sent in the mail? One of them was Obama. I don't remember who the second one was. But anyway, they asked him, "Um, are you planning on calling them after the fact here? And he said, if they wanted me to, but we'll pass. Meaning, they don't want me to, so I'm not going to. But he specifically said, if. Well, the Salon, I don't call it a newspaper or trash, basically, Right there in the headline, you know, they took out the word if. Not, they want me to, is what it said. They want me to, but it will pass. And I thought, they do this even though there's evidence out there that everybody can see that that's exactly what they did. The world twists and turns because that's what the world does. But see, when you're saved, you're supposed to see things new. Evaluate things properly. These false teachers twisted and turned things and manipulated things deliberately. And Paul says, but that's not me anymore because I've got a new perspective. I see things differently. I used to see Christ that way. I now see him differently. Because of that, I see people differently. And because Paul evaluated and saw people differently, saw them through the lens of Christ, because Paul looked at these people and saw new, that dictated how Paul behaved and what he did. So let me ask you this by way of practical application. Does the way you view or treat people reveal a fleshly view of creation? A worldly perspective or a Christ-like perspective? Let me give you an example of this. So the other day, my coworker called me. He had done some work for a, a person out in Indiana, a sales rep, and he forgot to do something. And she went nuts. Absolutely went nuts. So she called him. And he said, oh, I'm driving back. I've got a three-hour drive in the car. Um, I'm sorry, I completely forgot. And she immediately unloaded on him how he had done it deliberately and how why was she, he trying to hurt her and how difficult this had become. And he's like, I, 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 just, I just forgot. I just I, Literally, there's a hundred things to do. And I just I forgot. She was not having any of it. So Garland called me and he said, hey, would you call her and help her out? So I picked up the phone, called her, and she immediately started ripping Garland to shreds. I mean, he did this deliberately. And I said, well, wait a minute. I said, you know what? Garland and I do the same thing. I've done that, and I've forgotten things too. That didn't appease her. He goes, I don't buy that for a minute. And she just she was getting belligerent and nasty. And I'm like, I'm just trying to help you out. So I'm like, hey, I, let's just talk about this. I'm here to help you out. Let's not talk about Garland. But yeah, and, she just went on. and I'm like, look, I'm, I'm here to help you out. 
And so I started working with her, trying to, but she just kept, and she was, the whole conversation was just nasty. Finally finished all that, and I did some extra things for her to try to help her out. I thought, I'm going to go the extra mile here to kind of smooth this over, you know. And I think I had three or four more conversations where each one got nastier and more belligerent. And just, at one point, she's like, you just make me want to vomit, you know. And finally, <laughs> finally, I just, I just kind of went, you know what? I said, I'm here to help you out. And to be real frank, you should be nicer to your IT guys. I said, because we're just here to help you out. And I said, so in a moment... If this continues, I'm going to hang up until you can compose yourself. And once you can compose yourself, I'm here for you. I'm here to help you out. That's just it. I just, I want to help you out. I want to take care of this for you. So I'll give you another opportunity to mellow out. If you don't, I'll hang up the phone. And then when you call them down, you can call me. And I swear, I'll take care of you. I'll be right there, you know. But I tell you, the whole time I was battling because... She was just shredding me. And I'm like, there's no reason Garland had to put up with this. There's no reason I should have to put up with this. But I'll be real frank. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking, no, you can't. Because this girl knows that you're a pastor. She knows you're a Christian. If you do anything here to screw up that witness, it's your fault. And I had to remind myself, okay, hmm, you know what? She's unsaved. She doesn't know any better. She's driven by the flesh. And to be real frank, I found myself going, can I really blame her? It's all she knows. I was there. I used to be like this. That's the new perspective I'm talking about. Now, we don't always behave that way. But when we have that perspective, when we're able to look at other people and see them through the lens of the gospel, see them as Christ sees them, that typically will change our behavior to some degree. And that's, I think, what Paul is getting at here, where he's like, look, I'm not like those false teachers that just look at you through the eyes of the flesh, what they want and everything else, but rather, I've got a new perspective because of my relationship with Christ, and that sets me apart from the false teachers because it dictates how I see people and how I treat people. I'm going to go ahead and just wrap it up with that and, and leave it there for us, but I think what we've really seen here is this is where it really gets personal for Paul You know, we see some things in Paul here that aren't just him defending himself now, but telling us what's inside, what's in his heart. He says, you know, I've got a healthy fear of the Lord that that determines how I behave. I'm compelled by the love of Christ, and that's what drives me to, to suffer and to do the things that I do. But not only that, I have a new perspective. I see things differently now because I'm saved. I'm not in this for me like the false teachers are in it for themselves. I have a whole new perspective now that I'm in Christ. And all those things shape what Paul did and likely should shape what we do and how we behave. Amen?